The Rewindables, the one you take to bed with you. The new baby was up all night. Now you gotta make the morning right. Soldiers always come through. It's decaffeinated too. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Folgers decaffeinated uses mountain ground beans because they have more aroma than lower level beans. And you need great aroma to wake you up. Now you're off to a great start because Folgers warmed your heart. If you're ever lonely watching television, your troubles may soon be over. That's because finally there's a TV that talks back to you. Kind of. Interactive TV doesn't really speak, but there is a whole lot more give and take than with your average two. You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. to get into that this plane is about to get off the ground and a very important moment happens at one minute 48 second in which Cliff Secord gets ready. He's kind of like waving PV's uh, anxiety off and he sticks a fresh piece of gum from his mouth on the back tail wing before entering the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And then PV says, that's fresh paint, damn it. You know, keep her straight, keep her level. It's your first time up, so don't do anything interesting. Who, me? Yeah, you. And remember, she stalls out at about 100. So keep the airspeed up, otherwise you're going to be drifting around all over the sky. And if the ailerons start to shimmy... Baby, I have flown a plane or two in my life. You know? Not like this one you have, and this one's, this one's a handful. You sneeze in this thing, and you can end up upside down on the bean field. That's fresh paint, damn it! You want me to crash? Chewing gum, you're going to keep your butt up in the air? You treat her nice, Clifford. She's going to take us all the way to the Nationals. Let's make some history. Yeah. You want me to crash? Is what Cliff says afterwards. And, Back her up, Goose! You know, PV says something that's lovely. He goes, chewing gum ain't going to keep your butt up in the air. And boy, we're going to mm. get into that later in this film. But yeah, it, remember that line. That's a little bit of foreshadowing, bit of foreshadowing my friends. Again, a little bit of foreshadowing. It's just a credit to how tight this first 10 minutes is. Everything you basically need to know about this film is... It's a Swiss watch. It's a Swiss watch of perfection. Flick Flock, the Swiss watch for girls and boys. I just wanted to note this because it's going to come up later. We're about to learn more characters who are not even in the scene and the way we are going to be introduced to them is lovely because we're about to be introduced to Cliff's love. 
Jenny Blake. Mm. Yeah, no, Christian, I said the same thing to Ben uh, numerous times the last few weeks where I was like, I, I spent days with the first 10 minutes of this film. Just like, it, there's just so much here. Like I, I, I simply could not get past like yes. a minute. And, a and it's like, how do we learn about Jenny Blake? He tapes her photo to the cockpit dash and the inscription reads, love your lady luck, Jenny with a heart and an arrow through it. And this is how we're introduced in the first three minutes to the love interest. And it is like, so beautifully subtle that we now understand that PV and Cliff have this like father son dynamic. We have learned about Cliff's love and that this is the, the mm-hmm. person who drives him and compels him in life. And we've learned it through a little stained tiny photo that he tapes to his dashboard. Yeah. A little black and white taped on by the way, not with like clear scotch tape, but with period appropriate brown, uh, kind of like, th- you know, thick, thicker brown tape. Um, like literally the kind of tape that would be available yes. in 1938. Hi everyone, Vicky here. I am going to show you how to make this vintage tape. And at that point, Cliff throttles up, and again, the score takes a shift. Again, James Horner nails it. That like the music that has made this kind of uh, the sound that has been very evocative of America, flying sweetness. The second the plane starts to take up, it swells, and as the plane takes off. You see Peavy smiling with a proud father. And Cliff shouts down, hey, watch this, Peavy. And he comes buzzing down over over the landing strip. And you just, everything about this is a beautifully executed uh, a bit of aviation sequence. It just, the yeah. music adds to it. I just want to say I'm just in total awe of the cinematography in these opening shots. So specifically at two minutes 38 seconds there's this really it's just so beautifully carefully designed and storyboarded there's this wide shot at 238 this opening scene Mm -hmm. set outside in this again this yellowy brown desert landscape southern california you know just just outside of los angeles you're in the valley here and this is this this perfect tiny little single engine plane it putt puts down the dirt runway yeah again there's the music the orchestration it gives us this very like david versus goliath type yes. vibe mm-hmm. it's it's the little engine that yeah. could right also note the the oil derricks in the background on the left yep. um you, you you realize like this is literally like yeah just uh you know barely settled like wild land that that uh that these men are, you know, in, in their various pursuits, just you know, trying to, trying to settle and 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 you know, push push forward. To me, basically. this may as well be the Gemini missions. Like this is like the the equivalent of like man overcoming what is possible at this time. Like the the music is evocative of it, the plane is evocative of it. We just these are people achieving the impossible in the desert in the early 1900s. It's truly, and that's a credit to director of photography, Hiro Narita, which uh, got to give credit where credit is due. Incredible director of photography. Um, But Mm -hmm. I also want to... Also production designer, Jim Bissell. Yes. I don't know if you were about to shout him out. Absolutely. Another name that I think is very important to shout out, and let me make sure I find the correct name because my notes are copious. Um, Ah, the reason I also think everything, because you're right, Chris, that the sequence of the plane even going off the runway is expertly edited. 
the the cutting here is unbelievable how much visual information is cut over the next 10 minutes. We're about to get three different storylines, most of which is happening silently. It's going to be like Cliff's plane doing stuff. There's a car chase that's coming up. There's a crook's getaway. A lot of stuff is happening, but it's all threaded together with basically very few words. And that is a huge credit to a guy named Arthur Schmidt, who is the editor of this film. And Arthur Schmidt also is the editor mm. of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, mm. Forrest Gump, oh my God. Cole's Minor Daughter, <laughs> Death Becomes Her, The Last of the Mohicans, The Birdcage, oh, oh. Castaway, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I mean, the guy was a stud. Jesus and Christ. And I think like what's really important to understand is like everybody in this film is hitting on all cylinders from direction yeah. to costuming to acting. But the editor took all this information and just threads it together in a way that just makes you again. Like I'm like, it's funny that this sequence is ultimately based on paper. Plane on runway gets pushed out and flies in the air. That's what happens. Yeah. However, yeah, there's no, there's the right. The way it builds is with this musical, beautiful tension with the music swelling and the way it's cut, it's always has this tension that something's going to go wrong with the plane, that like what's going to happen to the plane. And then it goes off the ground and the music just hits this like incredible, like there's almost like a xylophone effect that, that again, very evocative of, um, of Copeland. Copeland used this sound all the time and it takes off mm -hmm. and it swells and it's just this like, Again, it's a Gemini mission. We've made it to the moon. We've gotten out of orbit. Mankind has done the impossible. And it's like, God, yeah. what a good movie. Or even even like the like the 2001 Space Odyssey, like, uh, you know, the first time like the, the apes discover like the tool of like just like the, the incredible like epicness of like the dun dun. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, it, it's like something that, again, yeah, it just it feels like shooting into outer space. Like there's like nothing more like stirring and epic um than like yeah this this music and, that we're hearing and and frankly nerve-wracking yes. so we see mm. cliff we mm -hmm. see cliff well we've just been told photo. of just how dangerous this plane is yeah PV, we, see, PV. we see cliff kiss the photo of of his of his of his the love of his life jenny inside of of the plane and then we cut to the grim, nervous faces of these onlooking engineers waiting and watching as Cliff revs his engine. And oh yeah, should we talk about off. his his little trio of buddies here? Absolutely. Yes. So we've got, um, I believe, the very first one that we see on screen uh, pushing pushing the tail of the plane out of the hangar is uh, is Goose, uh, played by Don Pugsley. Uh, who you may remember from another uh, Los Angeles-based film, uh, Naked Gun Two and a Half. I love it. He's wired. Tie him up. You'll never get away with this, Hasberg. Uh, he played uh, one of the one of the goons in Naked Gun Two and a Half that uh, wow. felt up Frank Drebin in the warehouse Which is in theaters as this movie is. So he's out. having the oh, yeah. weekend. He's like, I've done it. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he's on fire. Yeah, his career is 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 clicking right now. Um, but yeah, Don Pugsley, great character actor. Um, I mean, that's the thing is like. Obviously, we're going to get into it, uh, all, all the different, you know, characters and, and faces and stuff that we're going to meet. But, like, the leads are cast perfectly, um, but the little background players, too, are just as perfect. Like, every single character is, like, just impeccably perfectly cast. Um, so we have uh, Goose is uh, played by Don Pugsley. We have Skeets, 
uh, played by William Sanderson, um, another amazing character actor you may remember from uh, such films as Blade Runner. What's your name? Chris. Mine's J.F. Sebastian. Hi. Hi. Oh, where were you going? Home? I don't have one. We scared each other pretty good, didn't we? We sure did. <laughs> I'm hungry, J.F. I got stuff inside. You want to come in? I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> uh, and then probably my favorite is Eddie Jones as Malcolm. He's the older guy uh, who's kind of like walking out, um, you know, behind the crew. Um, and Eddie Jones, Malcolm uh, is going to play a very, very pivotal role later in the movie. Um, but Eddie Jones is just one of the most like heartbreakingly like empathetic like faces in like movie history. Actor Eddie Jones was born and raised in Pennsylvania. After high school, he came to California and took acting classes. And I guess the rest is history, Eddie, because you've been working ever since then. Well, I've been working pretty much uh, since that time. And, and uh, I actually, I hitchhiked to California. Is that how you got Yeah, it? I hitchhiked to California. I had $150 in a poker game. Did it, did, it, did, uh, did it build your acting ability? I, I don't know, but anyhow, <laughs> so I, I, actually I came out here to go to school uh, because uh, we didn't have too much money. Uh, so I came out to go to school and then I, then I got involved in, uh, with this friend of mine who was going to an acting class and the next thing you know I was in summer stock. Is that right? So you weren't planning to be an actor? I was not, no. What uh, were you planning to be? I was uh, something like an electrical engineer. Oh, boo. Yeah, I have. Boring. Know, I don't know. I don't know. If I, if, I get, if I get this acting right, maybe they'll accept me back in school. Oh, please. When are we going to do that? You've been an award-winning stage actor in Los Angeles, New York, on Broadway, off-Broadway. You've been in several films, The Grifters, Prince of the City, mm -hmm. uh, A League of Their Own. You've played regular roles on ABC, Lois and Clark. Right. And uh, something the, else. The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man on the high, on the sci-fi. Sci-fi channel, right. But how does it feel being Superman's dad? <laughs> uh, that was, uh, uh, well, it's kind of you pound your chest a little bit, I guess. Uh, Can you fly? <laughs> Ask Anita. Uh, Anita Kanzadia, <laughs> your wife. wife. Yes, yeah. ask the Anita director. Has she directed you to fly? Because she directed she, you in Death of a Salesman. Yes, she did. Uh, she has uh, directed me to fly. I don't know if she's directed me to fly, but. Uh, he just plays like such a perfect, like, kind of sad sack, uh, like, you know, sort of like means well, but kind of a. I don't know. Whatever. He's he's so perfect. He was in. Uh, he played uh, one of the dads of the of the uh, players in A League of Their Own. She's your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Her mom's dead. It's just the two of us. Coaching the American Legion team said if she was a boy, he'd have took her to the state tournament. And he said if she was a boy, I'd be in New York talking to the Yankees instead of living in this place. All right, that's enough. You can bring her over here. Okay, Marla. Come here. Boys, hit the shower. Take off your hat, honey. 
We'll let you know. Danny, I'm sorry. Come on, let's go. We'll miss the train. Let's move, move, move. What's the matter? I can't use her. She's great. Why not? What's the problem? You know General Omar Bradley? Yeah. Well, there's too strong a resemblance. You mean you ain't taking her because she ain't pretty? Well, look who just caught up. All right, come on, let's go. But yeah, uh, Skeets, Goose, and Malcolm, that's our little trio of, uh, of helpers. Um, if I may, I would like to add mm. this bit, which is that, and again, mm. I, I've likened this very much to a Norman Rockwell painting. I think what's also mm-hmm. kind of of note that nowadays, if this film is cast, everybody in the shot is beautiful. And it rips mm-hmm. you out of the scene. Whereas, not to besmirch these people, they're not bad looking people, but they look like human yeah. people. You might they run, look very normal. They look like yeah. normal. The type of guys that would work in an airplane uh, hangar. Big time. They're yep. kind of dirty. They've got wrinkles because they're in the sun all day. Like, these are the kind of faces that usually populate like a Coen Brothers movie. Like, it's it, mm-hmm. it, these are characters that feel lived in and properly in their place. They don't feel like actors. Just again, all of it makes me feel like I am in 1938 on a landing strip watching a flyboy and his like nervous Nelly kind of dad figure launch off and you think that thing's going to explode. And that tension is built by everything we're talking about. I, I just think like it doesn't feel like a movie to me right now. It just feels like I'm watching a well shot thing from 1938 that happens to be in color. <laughs> like It's like it doesn't feel like a movie. It's incredible. Yeah. And then so speaking of the tension, like right after the camera pans down the the row of faces, you know, nervously uh, watching Cliff um, as he finishes his taxi to the end of the runway, then we see inside the plane, you know, Cliff grab the throttle. Uh, the, the the red handle, he, you know, puts his goggles on uh, over his, you know, leather flying cap, um, aviator cap. And then we see him grab the throttle and we see outside the plane. He, it's a very short shot, right at 326, 325, 326, uh, where he picks his head up and you see just how fucking tiny the canopy, which is like the kind of windshield yes. of the of the cockpit. It's basically like a little, it's like a helmet. Basically, it's like a second helmet. It's a tiny glass bubble around his head that is the entirety <laughs> of, the, of the top of the plane. Um, it's like just barely enough air around his head so that his head isn't touching the glass. Um, but it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, incredibly tiny, tight, claustrophobic space. Um, and yeah, Cliff is, he's all business though. He is locked in. He's got his game face on. And they have to manually start the propeller folks. It's. Yeah, oh yeah. It really puts into perspective, Ben, just and Christian, how small this plane is like these pilots must really feel every little thing in the air because the the body of the plane is so small the slightest you know drift of wind or much less when they're landing the plane even if it's a smooth landing physically that will be so jarring you are sort of feeling every little you know bounce on the ground every rock um it, it it's really eye-opening to see to see like how tight he is in there in that plane in that cockpit you mentioned that the cranking of the propeller to to fire it up i love when uh you know pv says crank her up goose 
Crank her up, Goose. Make her hot. Hot and brakes. And then the guys just throw back this terminology, which, you know, totally just, they don't, you know, uh, focus on it or, or, or linger on it in any way uh, to draw the audience's attention. But they just shoot back and forth, make her hot, hot and breaks. And I, like, looked that stuff up and, like, that's just, like, terminology that they, that they use, like, uh, hot and breaks, has, uh, I forget exactly, it has something to do with, like, you know, you shout that out to, to tell the guys, like, okay, the engine is on, it's hot. And then I think brakes means like, you know, basically like I'm, I'm going to take my foot or no, I think it's like, uh, my foot is on the brakes so you can start the propeller or something like that, but whatever. It's just like some shit that they said, but it is like completely accurate period terminology that these guys would have been, you know, saying to each other as they start up a, a, a plan. And I, and I just like another just fun, interesting tidbit again to this era, this time and just what a small world it all was is they kickstart this plane and you see them literally like lift his leg up to even get this thing going. And in the background, you once again see that this is Bigelow Aeronautical Corporation and below it, a little bit harder to read because uh, it's black on gray. Uh, it says Chaplin Field. Chaplin Field. What I learned, I did not know this, is that Chaplin Airfield was founded in 1919 by a fellow named Sidney Chaplin. Sidney Chaplin was Charlie Chaplin's brother. That is unbelievable <laughs> to me. I'm Hell like Charlie yeah. Chaplin was having a successful career. Sydney was also a vaudeville guy, but didn't totally succeed. He became the business manager for Charlie Chaplin. He became more interested in air uh, stuff that was going on in the Valley and ended up getting heavily invested into it and ended up being a very successful uh, air, uh, not like a pilot, but he owned his own kind of like airline essentially. And part of it was mm. he had actually started this Chaplin field, uh, which is unbelievable. And again, uh, so just, awesome. It, it just speaks to like this time, this era, Charlie Chaplin era of filmmaking is going on at the same time, just south of this location. And like up north of the valley, we have Cliff Secord in his beautiful yellow GB or BG. Was it a BG or GB? I never get this right. GB. It's beautiful yeah, GB, GB. And he's about to fly off and do the impossible in this dust field. Yeah, it's it's crazy how how intertwined those worlds, those industries of, of aviation and, uh, and Hollywood and, and filmmaking were, um, because like a lot of, you know, so like after world war one finished, like, um, you know, these pilots came back home and they were like, okay, what the fuck am I supposed to do with myself now? I, all I really know, my only real skill is to fly a plane, which is why in the 1920s, uh, uh, barnstorming, you know, uh, took off, which is basically like pilots, um, most of them, World War One veterans, would just fly around to random towns in their biplanes and be like, "Hey, I'll give you, uh, you know, these, you find folks a, a ride in my plane for five dollars a pop. It'll be the greatest experience of your life." And planes were so new, and and the novelty was like, you know, just, just so incredible uh, to people that that they would uh, go around, and then they started doing air shows, you know, like um, these these big productions and stuff. But then a lot of the guys. Um, who, you know, either worked, you know, uh, dried up at the air show or, or, or the barnstorming circuit or whatever. And so they would go to Hollywood and be like, hey, I could fly planes in, in your silent pictures, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, help you make uh, Wings, uh, for example, the very first movie to win an Academy Award uh, for best, uh, best Picture. Paramount 
presents Wings, the first movie to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. The story of two men who have gone to war and the girl they left behind. Starring Clara Bow, the It Girl, Gary Cooper, Buddy Rogers, and Richard Arlen. Wings is a whopping air spectacle, dominated by remarkable aerial stunts. Filled with action, shock, thrills, and tragedy. Twists of fate in love and war that catapult three people to their destinies. One of the greatest silent motion pictures ever made. Wings. Or Hell's Angels, uh, uh, perhaps, which will... Uh, you know, talk talk about a greater length later on. Hell's Angels, the opening of this picture at Raman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, was the biggest premiere ever seen anywhere in the world before or since. Five hundred thousand people are lining the street. Gene Harlow. I would like to use this occasion to publicly thank Mr. Hughes for the opportunity he gave me. Yeah, the, the two worlds were very intertwined. You're telling me that there was a time where they would fly down and be like, for five bucks, do you want to fly in this? That's still, if, oh, oh yeah. my God, like that's such a novelty that if that happened now, I'd be like, take all my money. <laughs> like if I had like a stuck yeah. biplane just swoop down and like a drunken <laughs> World War II vet is like, get in my plane, this is my only skill. Yeah. I would do it. I'd be like, take my... Uh, the only problem is that there were no regulations and uh, often uh, those rides would result in ca- catastrophic Maybe Baby, death. that's um. the thrill of the ride. I mean, you're paying five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you're paying five bucks. That's like a carnival ride that opens in your town. You're like, it wasn't there yesterday. It's here now. How did that happen? Yeah. It wasn't magic. It's dangerous. So this was one of the first moments in the film where, like, we're what three minutes in i think so um, yeah <laughs> where i hit pause and i realized i didn't i mean i know this is not exactly who cliff is but while we're having this discussion i didn't totally understand or or fully understand what a stunt pilot did mm. initially i thought i was like wait like is a stunt pilot like is a stunt pilot like a stunt performer is this like a person or a pilot that's a stand-in for like the main pilot and and this person does the dangerous stuff and it's it's not exactly that but it's a little bit like that the the job of a stunt pilot basically i learned is to perform stunts so like you're saying christian special turns tricks nose dives googling around i learned the word aerobatics is is a blend of the words airplane and acrobatics and stunt planes and stunt pilots performed entertainment, amusement, sport, and aerobatic maneuvers in involving things like loops and rolls, uh, which are sort of like spirals, twit that, that twisting motion that happens while sim- simultaneously moving forward. My name's Kenny Chang. I'm 25 years old. I'm from Hong Kong. I'm an aerobatic stunt pilot. I will never forget the first time I saw myself hanging upside down. 
and I was hooked after that. Uh, I knew exactly that was what I wanted to do. Flying alone in an airplane, it's, um, it's a wonderful feeling. I, I, I will never forget. I was 17 and that was the first time after four years of training I could finally fly alone because that's a minimum uh, legal age to fly. I remember just screaming inside a cockpit thinking, wow, it's so nice not having to fly with someone. And this is my plane now. <laughs> Aerobatics is basically putting an airplane in a very unusual attitude that you will not see on a commercial airliner. So that involves doing maneuvers that makes the airplane go upside down, drawing circles in the skies. The challenge of aerobatics is flying a very sensitive airplane under tremendous g-force. I believe it's the fastest motorsport and also it's the most g-force sport out there. like a Formula One racetrack uh, where the drivers get to see the corners and um, where they have to brake. Competition aerobatic is very much about having that 3D racetrack in your head. And it's very, very easy to turn the wrong way for half a second and oops, there you are, that you're out of the championships. And in the early days of flying, some pilots used their aircrafts as part of the, they were part of like the flying circus to entertain. So these single engine planes would perform tricks to inspire gasps and amazement for onlooking crowds. And that sort of thing will actually come to fruition in, uh, in the film for Cliff. Also of note that this is all happening in the midst of the Great Depression. Like, and, the, and this is mm. a true fact, which is that Basically, the U.S. national air races started in the 1920s is when that started to become a thing. It started to peak during the Great Depression of the 30s. And like at a time when most people were unemployed and had nothing, the national air races proved extremely popular. It was cheap entertainment that you could see in the wild. It was incredible. It was a level of optimism and hope that people didn't even think was possible. Again, these people couldn't even afford bread. Like, but they were going to see these shows to the point, like I, while reading about this kind of stuff, that some of these events were hosting, I think they said there was like a quarter of a million people to attend these stunt shows because it was so awe inspiring. And again, like it's, we live in this time where nothing, people are so in the, they didn't have TVs, folks. People are just so lack of awe. Like the last time, probably the United States has felt any level of awe like this was like the space race where people were literally yeah. tuned in to be like, this is unbelievable. This is impossible. It's fascinating that, or, you know, OJ, OJ, Simpson OJ Simpson. Also. yeah, of course. But again, OJ appears to be holding a gun to his head. David, the, uh, the 405 is not too and much OJ farther is saying, near the 91. And the next, phone, next uh, major will to go come to his mother's will house. be the Long Beach or the 710 freeway. To to his and after that house, uh, would be the 110 no freeway. We're getting... And then after that, you'd hit the 405. So, uh, I mean, it, it, at this point, we, we really have no idea which uh, uh, or where the final destination uh, may be for uh, a purported OJ Simpson inside this uh, white Bronco. 
You are listening to KCL's coverage. There's an anchor in the studio and a man in the helicopter, a reporter. I mean, it was like the greatest. <laughs> I can't, oh, my God, I can't wait for the clip that it's going to be dropped in right there. <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> the juice is loose was the last time America felt the level of joy of a Great Depression yeah. show. It was when the juice was loose in the Bronco. Yeah, and I didn't even need to pay a nickel a ticket for that one, folks. Just turn on my television set during Game 5 of the 1994 NBA Finals. Hi, Tom. Obviously, it's so difficult to follow news of that nature. And as we return to Madison Square Garden, tempers flaring between the Rockets and the Knicks with 49 seconds to go in this first half. Here's another look at it while we were away. And as Olajuwon just tried to gather himself and pick up the basketball, he either inadvertently caught Mason with an elbow in the chest or head area or an intentional and Mason... Um, but yeah, so this is all happening in the Great Depression. And you're right, Chris. It's like, I didn't know this. And it, I mean, I think you're right. It's like, what was a stunt pilot? That's so weird. Also, one last... In- just ridiculous uh, piece of trivia, or like not trivia, but historical fact. Uh, talking about the the speeds of of this plane, uh, you know the GBZ. Um, so at the time, like this thing was breaking speed records for the fastest, you know, uh, thing ever made by man. Um, and that means like even the United States government and military like didn't have <laughs> shit this fast, which is one of the most mind. Like when I found that out, I was like, wait, what? Like, so this was literally just civilian aircraft. The GB was created by, uh, the reason why it's called the GB is because it was uh, built by the Granville Brothers Aircraft uh, of Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, with the sole intent of just making it as fast as possible. So these were just some some aviation dudes in Massachusetts who were like, we're going to make the fastest plane. And they made a plane that was faster than anything that the United States military had access to like imagine and like and like a pilot like a random dude in los angeles in you know the 1930s could be like oh yeah i'm a pilot can i can i go for a ride and literally like the equivalent of you know an f-14 or i don't know what the fastest current military (laughs) like fighter jet or like drone is but like that blew I also my mind. think it's going to be really um, funny when our podcast becomes just like you know what the problem is regulation big old government regulation is what's <laughs> holding our boys in blue from hitting epic speeds uh, but yes this was back when uh, when innovation was a real the uh, real America's pastime but, god but damn it, it when we used to make things I, I think at this era also there's something to be said about humans were treated like cattle like it didn't matter if a oh, yes. stunt pilot blew up they're like just put the next oh clown. people died all, all the, the time. time like yeah. you watch like these old films with like Buster Keaton where they're like we're just gonna drop a house right. on them and it's like the rules yeah. and regu- there were there casualties. casualties of yeah, yeah. this. And there were a few casualties. It turns out to make uh, <laughs> to make progress, you got to crack a few crack eggs. A few you know, eggs, and those eggs are stunt pilots in the thirties. <laughs> so, um, so Cliff is able to get the plane off the ground. Yes, right? finally. Ultimately, he's up in the air. Folks, that we've done minute. it. We're three minutes into the film, and the, the plane that's been technically pushed out of a barn is now in the air. <laughs> Just to clarify yep. how far we are in the film. At 3.51, we take flight. 3.51. So it's a beautiful thing. What a shot. Tight tight of his mm. eyes, putting the goggles on. Beautifully sequenced. 
of, of just raising tension without telling you. This is a real show yeah. them, don't tell them. And he's flying around that big uh, white and red, I guess it's a, a racing pylon is uh, the term I, I learned this week. Uh, which is how they would judge, you know, basically like, you know, a giant pole that you have to fly around in order to judge, like, the speed of the plane, how how quickly can you make it from, you know, because obviously there's no race tracks up in the air, but so races, plane races would be flying us in an oval around, you know, two or sometimes more. Also, I, guess, I, the race. Weep for the, Pylons. I weep for the person who's stuck next to Ben Craw on the next cross-country flight. In which he's like talking, you'd see these pylons over there and they're like, <laughs> put their Bose headphones on and pretend they're dead or unconscious. He's like, let me tell you another thing about BGs in the 30s. And they're like, oh, we're going to need... GBs, gonna, GBs, need GBs, come on. We're not, we're not talking yeah. about uh, yeah, yeah. gold medallions and chest hair, all right? Please insert as much BGs music into this pod as possible <laughs> because I get it wrong. Every time anytime Christian I, makes that yes, mistake. Anytime I say BGs, you've got to oh, insert staying alive. A falsetto uh, Robin Gibb. Uh, yeah, the GBs, there we go. But or Gary, uh, no, uh, uh, what's... Uh, yeah, or Barry Sorry, Gibb. We're having a good time here. Barry, Barry Gibb. Gibb. Not, We're yeah. having a good time. So, <laughs> or Rob, either one. They're, they're, all, they're, all, they're all great. Don't you they're give me Andy. Don't you give me Andy Gibb, Chris. <laughs> no, fuck you don't Andy. want Andy Gibb. Get him out of here. One hit. And it was, it was <laughs> Barry's song that was the hit. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be... All right, so PV, PV yeah. and his crew are feeling great about yeah. Cliff being up in the air He's he's whirling around doing these these circles. He's flying in nice and low, giving showing everyone a good time. Mm-hmm. Hot dogging it a little bit. Yep, you know. yep. And then at four thirty eight, I have in my uh, notes we have this just beautiful uh, aerial shot of the plane flying over Los Angeles, the incredible mountains. We have the title card, Los Angeles, nineteen thirty eight, and. Um, what can we say, guys? It's just a, a, a beautiful landscape shot here. It's, it's yeah. majestic. It's just breathtaking. It really is glorious. And I love the way they, they wait to, to bring up the time and place. You know, the way they, they there are no rush here. They wait for the perfect it's moment. It's patient. and Extremely patient. Yeah, I mean, again, like the camera's strapped to a real plane. Again, this is something you just don't see anymore. And it's a credit to this film. It just feels yep. all... Real. I believe a man can fly. Because it is. It's all practical effects. I was thinking of this shot. I was like, I don't see I don't see shots like this in movies anymore. This is so beautiful. I wish I saw people making You got you got literally a camera script and you see like the the sunlight's coming through the little cockpit. Yeah, you see the ocean. Yeah, and right after Mm. we know Cliff is in the the air, bam, whammo. We hard cut to up. Gun chase, a gun car sequence. A fucking a Tommy gun, gun firing right down the barrel of the lens to into the face of the viewer, yes. and then from the back of a car. You have to be willing to rewatch a movie. 